0: The first reading comes from Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 10 and can be found on page 3 of the Black Bibles. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden in the garden? The woman said to the snake, and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. The next readings can be found in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the street, uh, middle of the great street of the city. On every side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servant and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not le- need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the, ter- for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit of the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks, be to
1: God. Let's pray. Father, help us to make the connection between... Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and our lives. We want to live and work to your praise and glory. We want to offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice. We want to be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, as you'll know, if uh, unless this is your first time visiting today, as you'll know, our theme for Sundays in 2019 is Monday and tuesday and wednesday and thursday etc we don't want you to have to commute so to speak from two different worlds shuttling really between what one might call a sandstone world church and what you might call the real world as if only one of them is real nonetheless here the gospel of jesus christ matters but but on the whole at work the gospel does not matter. So, how do you live for God when, say, you're looking for work and it's not coming up, but you're praying about it, or when you have a job that you hate, or parts of your job are so mundane? How do you live for God when you used to be important, but now you're treated as irrelevant? Or you find yourself with more and more temptation towards sex, or greed, or you're ruled by fear, or governed by approval, or worse, you find out that you're more of a jerk than you thought you'd be, perhaps through stress. How do you live for God when people bag you out for being a Christian? At the Center for Faith and Work in New York City, uh, they say these words, the gospel has unique power to renew hearts, communities, and the world in and through our day-to-day work. And if vocation truly is, as Frederick Bietner claimed, where our greatest passion meets the world's greatest need, then our workstations, studios, and homes are nothing short of sacred. So we're on track. Mondays are important. But here we are in Lent. (laughs) And our Lent series this year is working our way through Genesis 3 through 11. Genesis 3 through 11 is where human stubbornness meets God's grace in the beginning. And in this world where you go to work. And so you know there's lots of work in Genesis 3 to 11. There's gardening there and farming and parenting and... And grandparenting, and great-grandparenting, and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparenting is there too. There are chefs, did you know, that stews are made? Musicians, in chapter 4, verse 21. And of course, there are boat builders, at least one of them. And therefore, I imagine architects, consultants, and project managers all appointed from within the family. Lent is about the examination of self before a holy and gracious God. And it leads, I believe, to an honest repentance and a new faith in this season as in all seasons. The Apostle Paul wrote, each of you should examine yourselves. So the series is working our way through Genesis 3 through 11, yeah, but its purpose is that we might examine ourselves. The series is called Six Rules for Work and Life, not in the sense of rules to be obeyed, but in the sense of principles that make sense of what we do. And you can see some of those principles on page, all of those principles on page six of your orders of service. It's a series borrowed from Canadian psychologist, Dr. Jordan Peterson's bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. For those who heard of it, not all of you have, the series is not connected in any way to Peterson, nor an advertisement for his book. Some of you will be relieved and some disappointed. Rather, it is closely connected with the oldest narrative we have, that of Genesis and the early chapters of the Bible. So for six weeks, we'll look at these chapters in Genesis and answer three questions each week, the same questions each week. Number one, what is the narrative that mirrors life? Secondly, what or how is this... Narrative fulfilled in Jesus, who gives life. And thirdly, what is the rule for life, for work and living? What's the narrative? How is it fulfilled in Christ? We're evangelicals after all. But also, what is the rule for life and living now? This week, the rule is, don't get above your pay grade, which is not about being put in your place, but rather, it's about knowing who you are in God's world. This morning, Genesis 3, in which Adam and Eve detach fruit from a tree. That's what happens. This morning is an extended reflection on what the text means by the detaching of a piece of fruit, or a particular piece of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What were Adam and Eve hoping for? And how is that moment expressed in work and life now? And what practical things can we learn as we connect the dots between Sunday and Monday? So first question, what is this narrative that mirrors life now? Stories, of course, have interpretive power. When told to the right person with a willing heart, we understand ourselves and our world better. We read stories to our four-year-old all the time. She has what one might call a willing heart. Genesis chapter 3 is a story that will seem strange to some, perhaps many, perhaps even fantasy. What with talking snakes, chapter 3 verse 6, with fruit that isn't just about roughage but rather giving a particular wisdom, chapter 3 verse 6, and God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, chapter 3, verse 8, does he have feet? Or fodder, of course, for the new atheists, who are quickly becoming old atheists. But the power in the story is not merely what happened to Adam and Eve, although that's important, you could argue, from Romans 5, but rather how these chapters hold a mirror up to us now, the rabbi said, When Adam ate the fruit, the world stood and cheered. In other words, I was there in the garden. Or to put it, or to put it as Paul put it, as in Adam all die. That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, right there. Genesis 3 answers some questions we're asking, like, why are we so quick to judge? Why is there so much judgmentalism? Why do we seek to control the narrative and lives? Why do we act like we know more than we do? It's not a stretch to say, why are there then bullies and abuse? Why are there so many clashes of wills and no singular coherent narrative? through life, and therefore, for example, culture wars. First thing to say about Genesis chapter 3 is it's not an apple that they ate. At least not that we know of. If you assumed it was an apple, you have been governed by medieval art. Rather, it is an unnamed fruit. Chapter 3, verse 2, Eve says, God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. But because it's not specified, I'd like to think of it as a banana for no particular reason. But that's just my prejudice. It could well have been capsicum or fruit, both found in my fridge. I had to Google it. They're both fruit. But I'm not packing it in my lunch. Who knows what it was? We don't know. But my point is if I'm going to pick up the tomato. <laughs> if we thought we knew what it was, that'd be a problem. See, Who's the woman talking to in chapter 3, verse 2? And the answer is a serpent who lies, a lying snake. Perfect, right? J.K. Rowling knows this. She gets it. Slimy, slithering, hissing things, they are. Crafty, chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent introduces distrust into the world. The woman becomes wobbly. He said to the woman, did God really say this or that? Did he, did he say it? Did he, is his word really trustworthy? Does he really love you? He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden, none of them? He There's one of those moments. I see what you did there. God didn't say that. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. It's important. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, all of them. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. And so the twisting of words changes not only the meaning of the words, itself a tragedy, but the way you understand God. He doesn't want you to have any enjoyment all the trees we discover in chapter 2 are pleasing to the eye and good for food a very clear hebrew construction just one of them stands the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a picture of the right of god to be god over us and to determine right from wrong the woman now wobbly offers back a half truth no the woman said to the snake no we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. God never said you couldn't touch it. Touch it all you like. Touch it, touch it, touch it. No problem. The woman now is going beyond God's words. The serpent is basically saying God is hiding something from you. He's a miser. He just wants to control you you know, stop your sticky fingers from touching things. And by the way, he won't punish you with death, verses 4 and 5. In other words, he's offering empty threats just to control the masses because that's what the church does in the name of God. (laughs) And the key line is in verse 6, uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye a very neat Hebrew construction. In other words... This tree is like every other tree that God said they could eat. If you thought that that tree in the middle of the garden had a glowing light on it, a halo, maybe it had golden leaves, some sort of flame for the moths, then you've been sucked in, really, not just by art over centuries, but also by a fib, a lie. This tree is described in exactly the same terms as every other tree that they're free to eat. She's nominated as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and because she's been told so, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She detached the piece of fruit from the tree. And we find out, now, her husband was there too. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. What some have called the silence of Adam. The eyes of both of them were opened, meaning they are now living and acting as though they were little gods. And with that, of course, fear and shame. It's not by the way that they committed some sin. Don't let anybody tell you that. It's not that they killed somebody. That comes in chapter 4. We'll learn that next week with the rule, listen to your resentment. They didn't kill, they didn't commit adultery. It wasn't alcohol, we'll come to that in, uh, on April 7. Their eyes weren't open because they, you know, looked at each other and, you know, their eyes were opened by sexual activity. Now, it's the sexual revolutionaries that want you to believe that and a history, of course, over centuries of that being an interpretation. No, they had already enjoyed that as husband and wife go forward and multiply. The only thing they did was detach from God his right to be God. And therefore, they were now above their pay grade as human beings. That's the narrative. Second, how is it fulfilled in Jesus who gives life? Now, this is important because we will not and we will never go from the Old Testament to, here's a rule uh, for living and blessing, hashtag blessing. It's not us. We're not going to do that in this Lent series or any other series. No, we lift up Jesus Christ. We say, here's the answer. Here's the fulfillment of these chapters. How is it fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus is the second Adam, the ultimate human being, if I can put it this way, who reattached the fruit to where it will live rather than wither. Jesus put, if I can put it this way, God back where he belongs, on his throne above us all, determining right from wrong, which is a thing above our pay grade. And how did he do it? How did Jesus do it? By dying. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. This is what the Apostle Paul will call in Romans 5, one righteous act, his death on the cross, one righteous act. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, because we were all there, so one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. So that, as the book of Revelation says, those of us, Who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and who were barred from the tree of life and we did and we were we thought we knew better than god but because christ died because christ was raised again and because christ is seated at the right hand of the father i have access to life the tree of life revelation 22 verse 2. my future is secure blessed are those who wash their robes, right, in Christ, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. In other words, you might know God and the hope He offers at His appearing. As C.S. Lewis said, Christ went down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with Him. Amen? So, what's the rule for life, thirdly, and living and work? Well, the rule I want you to go home with is don't get above your pay grade. It's a saying, of course. Uh, people use it to put others down. Uh, don't get above your pay grade, and I'm not going to use it for that purpose, because that's exactly what's wrong you know, with Adam and Eve, really. you know, I get to tell you what to do because I'm now my little king. Nonetheless, people say to themselves with some humility when they say something like I'm speaking above my pay grade when I say this or that. In other words... I'm not qualified to speak here, others know more than me, but here I go. (laughs) I do this with the wardens of this church regularly. Colour of paint in the parish hall, sandstone restoration, architecture, payment of invoices, all above my pay grade, thoroughly. I went to Moore Theological College to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that's above my pay grade. (laughs) Others know more than me. They're better at it than I am. They really are. So we know the phrase, but I want to apply the phrase to God. Three thoughts. Number one, give God His crown. Give it back again. You've had that little crown on your head, thinking you rule your life, it's your dreams and your will that matters. Stop thinking you're the guy who knows stuff. You're the woman who has it all worked out. He knows stuff and you don't. He knows stuff and I don't. God does. And what you do know, what we do know, is a gift from Him. It is revealed. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, we read, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's stuff we don't know, it belongs to God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we need to put that fruit back onto the tree or rather claim it in Christ he did the work and in Christ you get to go back to the garden too where we belong and if this is true then we have to have confidence in what God says but it's a it's a humble confidence if God said it in the bible don't say oh we aren't sure I and mean, you can say we're not sure about particular readings but You don't stand above what god has revealed and if he hasn't said it don't be so sure don't twist things in the bible to suit your desires and ask god to show you if that's what you're doing ask for wisdom james chapter one it's like a venn diagram which you could draw if you like there's things we know and things we don't know and to be humble about things we don't know and be confident about the things that have been revealed not overconfident, not underconfident. There's a space in the middle called the Gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing Him. And so yield to Him. Surrender to His will. Discover His love. Look for the plans and purposes of God and don't assume that the answer lies within. That's Disney. A Christian will say, I don't know, but there is one who does know. That thought, by the way, is profound. There's a bunch of people out there saying, I know nothing. And a bunch of people there saying, I know everything. And a Christian say, can say, because there is one who knows it all, I can trust him. Seek first his kingdom. It's thy will be done, not my will be done. So The first thing is to become a humble, humble follower of Jesus Christ. And I say that like there's another kind. Unfortunately, it would appear that there is. An arrogant follower of Jesus Christ, but I submit it's impossible. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. It's time to look above to Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Put him back on the throne. Secondly, let his rule extend to your workplace, not in an effort to control others. Of course not. That's the opposite of what we're talking about here. It could be influence in the workplace, but not control. Here is detached fruit from the tree in business. Ready? James chapter four, verse thirteen. Our Lord's brother wrote this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. That just sounds like business in a Western world. I can do it, and I'm gonna go and do it. Here is what it looks like to have that fruit reattached to the tree, says James. Why you do not you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I'm barreling on to 50 and I feel it more than ever. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. And they need to be words from the heart, not just from the lips. As it is, you, all your, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. It's first Adam stuff but it embedded into James chapter 4, is last Adam joy, the joy of not getting above your pay grade. I've got a friend of mine who says that you can see this detaching process in every staff meeting. For example, pretending to know more than you do, posturing, judging others, talking over each other, talking louder to win, putting people down, undermining others' ideas, having the last word. This piece of fruit, detached fruit, shows what's wrong with patronising people. My friend says, instead of looking for life and flourishing, you look for posturing and judging, saying, prove it to me. Show me how it'll work as if you're the one who has to be, have it proved to. Instead, all of us need to learn to move forward in what I call the mood of doubtful assertion. Subjunctive living, for those who know language. We need to learn to move forward in the mood of doubtful assertion. Do you think this might work? What do others in the room think? And by the way, give a voice to the person who's less likely to have it heard. Often a younger person, often a woman. Hmm? True clarity comes through humility. And there are those 12 things good bosses believe on page 5 of your zines. Be less defensive, to say more often, well, that's interesting, please tell me more. To let things go, we need, as James says, to be quick to listen, slow to anger, and slow to speak. Wouldn't that be great if that were the mode of boardrooms today? And you could contribute to that. Frederick Beekner wrote in Telling Secrets, he wrote, Stop trying to protect, to rescue, to judge, to manage the lives around you. Remember that the lives of others are not your business. They are their business. In fact, they are God's business. Even your own life is not your business. It's also God's business. Leave it to God. Trust Him. He writes, it's an astonishing thought. It can become a life-transforming thought. Unclench the fists of your spirit and take it easy. Maybe that's the message. What deadens us most to God's presence within us, I think, is the inner dialogue that we are continuously engaged in with ourselves the endless chatter of human thought how can i control my environment i suspect that there is nothing more crucial to true spiritual comfort than being able from time to time to stop that chatter trust god he knows you're not the answer me neither thirdly and finally Let his rule give you peace in suffering. Kate touched on this a moment ago. Thank you, Kate. You get this, don't you? By the way, when you look at this piece of fruit, um, you'll see it everywhere in society. You'll see it everywhere in your life. Not the fruit, of course, the idea. And you'll see it all the way through the Bible. The Psalms are full of it. God, I don't know why I'm suffering. I don't. But you do, oh God, therefore I will trust in you. I'll rest in you through the pitfalls and obstacles. In uh, the 2012 movie, Lincoln, the President says, a compass I learnt when I was surveying, it'll point you true north from where you're standing, but it's got no advice about the swamps, the desert, and the chasm you'll encounter along the way. And in pursuit of your destination, if you plunge ahead, heedless of obstacles, and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, What's the use of knowing true north? In the Christian worldview, you can know true north through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died for us and was raised again and pours his spirit out into our hearts. Spiritual man, writes Paul, spiritual person makes judgments about all things. God points you to true north, but he'll also get you there through the potholes of life. Job had to learn this through remarkable obstacles. The end of the book god appears to job out of the storm and he said who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge praise yourself like a man i'll question you will answer me job had to learn not to get above his pay grade and god shows him how to do that with such playful beautiful joyful profound and sobering questions and he does it so that you can handle the obstacles not above your pay grade but right where you should be a human being a creature of a good god trusting in jesus christ for the journey Or well, learn from jesus christ in philippians chapter 2 in your relationships with one another have the same mind as jesus christ who being in very nature god didn't consider equality with god something to be grasped he unclenched his fist rather he made himself nothing and being found in the appearance of, of, of an adam He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God took care of him. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not me. To the glory of God the Father, this Lent, let us learn to examine ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to pray a prayer for Ash Wednesday. I'm going to use the old language from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and thus forgive the sins of all them that are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee and no one else, may obtain of thee the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A prayer for peace. God of the nations whose sovereign rule brings justice and peace, have mercy on our broken and divided world. Establish your peace in the hearts of all and banish from our hearts, the spirit that makes for war, that all races and peoples may learn to live as members of one family in obedience to your laws, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. A prayer for social justice. Loving God, you have made all people in your image and you care for the poor and distressed. Make us a just society where the rights of all are acknowledged and upheld, where those who are oppressed are made free and where corruption has no place. Give companies, social institutions and governments the desire to act for the good of all, rather than for the advantage of a few. Empower followers of Jesus to model the values of your kingdom in all their relationships and hasten the day when Jesus will return to establish justice and your eternal reign for the glory of your name, amen. And lastly, for those who are lonely or hurt. Loving God, we pray for those who are hurting or lonely through bereavement, divorce or abuse. For those who are struggling with unhappiness in marriage or singleness. Where repentance is required, make us willing. Where reconciliation is needed, make us quick to forgive as you in Christ have forgiven us. Be our strength and comfort in every difficulty and struggle. Enable all of us to experience your generous love and to be renewed in our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.